invite you to remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in God's Word to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. We're going to read the entire psalm this morning. Beloved congregation, this is our God's word to us this morning. Let us give our attention, our undivided attention to it. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Malhath Lenioth, a mascal of Heman the Azurite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one sets loose, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a whore to them. I am shut up, shut in, so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do your works, sorry, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your tears. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And so ends the reading of God's word. Let us ask that our God would... Uh, open his scriptures to us and us to his scriptures. Let us pray. Our gracious God, you know our fickle hearts. You know that we fear the truth as much as we desire it. That we are as likely to run from it as we are to run to it. That we can suppress your glorious truth without a second thought. And so our confidence as we draw near to your word is that you are greater than our fears. That you are not bound by our sin and that your word gives freedom to those in bondage. May we not just believe these things, but witness them this morning as you open your word to us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Laments are uh, not complaints. Complaints are not laments. Complaints believe that what is going on is not fair. 
that you deserve better. Complaints believe that others have failed you, and ultimately complaints believe that God has failed you. But laments, laments are, are a little different, and that, that difference is important. Laments still believe that things are not as they should be, the way they're meant to be. And yet without focusing on who to blame, they acknowledge that what is going on is hard. And so complaints are angry, laments are sad. Complaints point fingers, laments weep. Complaints seek vindication, laments seek healing and restoration. Americans, us, we're good at complaining, but we're not very good at lamenting. We whine, we complain, we threaten lawsuits, or even worse, a negative review. But when life is hard, when life is really hard, when tragedy comes, what do we do? We distract ourselves. We hide. We bury ourselves in our work because we don't know how to cry. We don't know how to weep, how to lament. And in so doing, we short-circuit a process that God has meant for us to experience. When we don't lament, we don't deal with life's pains. And those pains remain raw and unhealed. Beloved, we, I, need to learn to lament. Psalm 88 may very well be the best instruction manual in existence on lamenting. My hope as we look at this psalm this morning is to simply point this out. Lamenting is the appropriate response of hope to a broken world. It is the appropriate response of hope to a broken world. And as we look at the psalm, we're going to see the constant presence of darkness. And so I'd like to start by, by looking first at life in the darkness and then ask, do we have companions in the darkness? And then finally look at what our hope is in the darkness. So what's life like in the darkness? Do we have companions in the darkness? And where is our hope in the darkness? That's really what I want to look at as we, as we meditate upon what is possibly the darkest psalm in our Psalter. Our psalm uh, begs for help, and yet it never comes. Day after day, night after night, uh, the psalmist keeps crying out for relief. He begs God to listen. He begs God to answer him. And, and, but as of yet, those prayers have, have gone unanswered. And so days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into months. And months turn into years. And he needs help. He needs rescue. But it has not come. Uh, they say that insanity is doing the same thing over and over expecting a different result. And so we have to ask, is the psalmist insane? 
Because every day without fail, he prays the same prayer. He can't make sense out of God's refusal to intervene. Look at verse 10. What if he dies? Verse uh, he says, did the departed rise up and praise? What, what benefit is there if I die? I can't praise you if I'm dead. Do those, verse 11, who have passed from this life speak of God's character? He just can't make sense out of the pain, out of the suffering, out of God's continued silence in the midst of it all. And yet he still continues to cry out. Every morning, he greets the new day with the same day, same prayer he prayed the day before, and the day before that, and the day before that. And sometimes as you read, sometimes as you listen, it's, it's not just important to listen to what is said, but sometimes what is unsaid. Many psalms like this include a confession of sin and a request for forgiveness. Many say, I know I've messed up. I I know I've brought this upon myself. Have mercy on me. Many acknowledge the present adversity in their life has been caused by their own sinful foolishness, and yet no such confession exists in this psalm. And this just compounds the confusion. Why? Lord, Lord, what have I done? Why is this going on? And yet there's no answers to those questions. There's only silence. Silence and darkness and sleepless nights. Things don't add up. And so the psalmist knows that that something's wrong, that things are not as they're supposed to be. There's a way things are supposed to be, and this is not it. Something is broken. Something is desperately wrong. It's so broken, in fact, that the line between life and death has become increasingly blurry. He says in verse 3 that his life draws near to Sheol, to the grave. And according to verse 4, he's, he's already been counted among those who go down to the grave, drained of all life and strength. He's not there yet, but he might as well be. He has more in common with those who are current residents of the local graveyard than he has with those in his neighborhood. His life is so hard, so wretched, that those who are alive around him want nothing to do with him. Because you know what it's like to be around somebody like this, a complete joy killer. They can suck the life out of the room like that. And so like one resting in the grave, he feels like he's in total darkness. But then, in verse 7, comes the real indictment. He sees all of this as having come from the hand of God, as being God's wrath. He believes that God is the one who has cast him out. God is hiding his face from him. It's God's terrors that he is enduring And it's just too much. It's too overwhelming. And so he feels like he's drowning. That image comes up a few times in the psalm. 
Life's pains are like one wave after another, crashing over his head, trying to, to pull him under and drown him and make him give up. And as soon as he manages to get his head back up above water, another wave hits him. Well, he tries to take in one breath. His lungs are filled with water. And he knows that maybe he can hold on for another hour, maybe another day, but eventually his strength will run out. Eventually those waves will be too much, too strong. If he's not dead yet, he's close. And that line is becoming harder and harder to distinguish. It's not hard, I think, to imagine Joseph, the son of Jacob, praying something like this. After all, he had been thrown into a real pit. Not a metaphorical pit, but a real, actual pit, and this by his own flesh and blood. And it was not for any failing on his part, but because of simple, petty jealousy from his brothers. From there, he was sold into slavery. Things started to look up only to be lied about, cast into prison without a trial. And there he sat in darkness. Not for weeks, not for months, but for years. How he must have prayed for release day and night, day after day. How he must have wondered why. I I didn't do anything wrong. I did things well, and I got punished for it. How he must have been... uh, tried to make sense out of it, but never been able to. But of course, it's not just the psalmist. It's not just Joseph. You have your own darkness. It could be antagonism for your faith. Your friends laugh at you and they no no longer invite you out because, quite frankly, you make their fun less enjoyable. Your family makes exaggerated questions about propriety just to to mock your desire to please your Lord. And so you always feel like you're the odd man out. You always feel like you're the unwelcome guest. Maybe it's not antagonism for your faith. Maybe it's abandonment. A parent who left or might as well have. A spouse who, who called it quits and walked away. Maybe your darkness is loss. A parent passes. A child born or still in the womb. You lose a sibling. You lose a friend. Or that spouse, the one that you were supposed to grow old with and enjoy those golden years has been taken from you. Or maybe it's illness. It's come and it's taken your vibrancy away. Now you deal with chronic pain, unable to enjoy your hobbies. Your, your mind is starting to slip and there's nothing you can do to push back that darkness that you know is creeping and consuming you. That cancer is untreatable. And the question is no longer if it will claim you. 
but how long until it does? Maybe your darkness is simply disappointment. You had dreams. You had expectations. And those are disappearing and you feel like someone has died. And yet you feel guilty. You feel like you're being silly. Because who grieves for something that never was? And yet alone in the darkness of the night, you confess you do. And like the psalmist, you feel increasingly alone, increasingly abandoned. Your friends shun you. You feel like you're in a prison. You're in solitary confinement. People don't know what to say around you, so they just keep their distance. You feel like a social leper. They avoid you because your sufferings make them feel uncomfortable. And eventually you cry out, as verse 18 does, my companions have become darkness. The Hebrew here is, is difficult to translate. It literally just says, my companions, darkness. And it's not that his companions have gone dark, it's that darkness is the only one who has not abandoned him, who has stuck around. Darkness is his only companion at this point. And we know where the mind goes. The questions it asks. God, do you see what's going on? God, do you understand what I'm going through? God, do you even care? To answer that question, I think we need to let the words of Hebrews 4 really sink in. There we read, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to that throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think sometimes we read this uh, to mean that, that Jesus underwent the same temptations we did. You know, temptations like uh, taking the easy road, temptations like uh, shading the truth to avoid humiliation, taking something that, that doesn't belong to us, or, or that temptation to blow up in anger and so on. We accept that Jesus endured these, but we reserve life's hardest struggles for ourselves. We put things that really test our faith into an entirely different category and we think those life-sucking realities that make us want to call it quits, that make us want to do anything to just end the pain, we think that those somehow never affected Jesus and he doesn't understand. Simply put, we don't believe that everything means everything. But the Bible will not let us get away with that, will it? Jesus knew what it meant to be abandoned by his friends. He knew what it was like to be betrayed by a beloved companion with a kiss to have another close friend who had swore he would never fail, never abandon, to that very night deny even knowing him. He knows what it is 
in his darkest hour to walk that long, painful road alone, abandoned by all. And he knows darkness well. Not just metaphorical darkness. So great was his pain that the sun itself had to hide its face from him. He knew what it was to be abandoned by his own father. He knew what it was to pray and hear no answer. And he knew what it was to have that line between life and death blur, fade, and then ultimately disappear. And then he was lowered from the cross, buried in the grave. There is nothing in Psalm 88 that he did not experience in full measure. His life was full of hardship, pain, and sorrow. And so Hebrews tells us, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Jesus knew the darkness and he lamented it. He lamented it with loud cries. He lamented it with tears. And nothing of that suggests a lack of trust. None of that suggests something lacking in him. Because lamenting is not weakness. Quite the opposite. Lamenting acknowledges that that things are not how they are supposed to be. Lamenting admits that something is broken. And Jesus, he knew because he created the world. He knew what it was supposed to be like. And it's not what he came into. If the world was still as he had created it, he would not have needed to come. He came because the world was broken, because sin had ruined everything, because a darkness once again covered over the face of the earth. He came in order to allow darkness, death, and the grave to consume him because this was the only way to save you and to save me from his own wrath and curse. There was no way for him to save us and not experience the mess that this world had become. So he experienced persecution, abandonment, loss, illness, death, and disappointment. And he took it all on himself so that he could deliver us from it. He did not love us from a safe distance. He experienced every reality in Psalm 88 so that he could be, as verse 1 so wonderfully puts it, the God of our salvation. He experienced the brokenness of the psalm so that he might rescue us from it. And in so doing, he answers the questions of verses 10 through 12. Yes, God does work wonders for the dead. They do rise up and praise him. Because of Jesus, darkness and the grave, they do not have the final word. Because of Jesus, the grave has lost its victory. Because of Jesus, death has lost its sting. The dead shall be raised, and they will dwell, as Revelation tells us, in a land that has no darkness and no night. 
And yet none of that means we should not lament the brokenness. Jesus knew that the grave would not win. Jesus knew the dead would rise and praise him. He knew full well how everything would end, and yet he still cried out. He still shed tears. He still lamented. He still acknowledged that that this is not how things are supposed to be. He acknowledged that something's broken. And so we need to learn to do the same. One of the reasons that Psalm 88 is so helpful is because of what makes it so different. There are many psalms that include laments. That's that's not unique of this psalm. What's unique of Psalm 88 is that it has no resolution. It ends with, darkness is my only companion. And that's it. Nothing more. As if it invites us to just keep waiting. We need a psalm like this. Because our lives are not sitcoms. Everything doesn't get resolved in a nice, neat little bow in 30 minutes. Sometimes in life we wait years, and sometimes this side of eternity never sees resolution. We struggle with suffering, deep suffering. It makes us question God's love. And we ask, how could He let this happen to someone He loves? Where's the hope? Where's the meaning? We question where he is in the midst of all of it. If he understands and why there's no respite. It doesn't mean that there will never be restoration, but it may not be quick. Think of those years of waiting while Joseph was locked in jail. How long until he stopped measuring days and time? So why? Why does God make us wait? What are we supposed to do while we wait? I think we need to learn to lament. God lets us wait in order to learn how to do that. Something we never do if resolution is quick. We need to lament because God laments. This world is not what it should be. It's broken. And that should grieve us. That should make us weep. It should make us lament. That's God's response and it should be ours as well. But it's not just an appropriate response. There's something healing about lamenting. Because lamenting forces us to confess that things could be better, that things should be better. Lamenting confesses the goodness of God's creation and of creation's God. 
Some people think lamenting shows a lack of faith, but we know that can't be true because Jesus lamented and he was sinless. No, I think lamenting is actually a demonstration of faith. You see, we talk a lot about suffering. And that's okay. The Bible talks a lot about suffering. But one of the dangers of doing that is to start thinking that suffering is natural, that it's just a part of of how God created the world and and it's to be expected. And, And then the response will become, why lament what's natural, what's supposed to be? You see, a refusal to lament means you think suffering is natural, that it's part of how God created things that this is how it should be. Refusing to lament denies the goodness of God's creation as it was created and the ugliness of sin and the fall. When we move too quickly from lament to hope, we might miss this. Or we might fail to plumb how deep the suffering really is and how wrong it is. When my grandfather passed away, my grandma just wanted to talk about him. And when she did, tears were never far behind. And so people would always try to redirect the conversation because they just didn't want her to be sad. They didn't let her lament to weep over death and loss. If we are to have true healing, we need to be honest with the depth of this world's brokenness. We have to be willing to confess with Jesus that this is not how it's supposed to be, that something is broken. We need to learn to lament. Lamenting doesn't deny hope. In fact, there is no reason to lament if you don't expect something better. You don't pray the same thing day after day unless you expect something better. Lamenting reveals hope, not doubt. Psalm 88 invites you to learn how to lament, to acknowledge that you were made for something better. When you wonder if God would ever allow those he loves to endure suffering like this that is described in this psalm. Remember, he he allowed Joseph to suffer. He allowed Job to suffer. He allowed David to suffer. And he allowed his own son to suffer. And each one learned how to cry out, this is not how it's supposed to be. Something's broken. Lord, bring healing. Bring restoration. We Americans don't need to learn to complain. We've, we've already got that down pretty well. We need to learn to lament. Complaining focuses on your comfort. Lamenting focuses on God and his creation and his goodness. Complaining says you deserve better. 
Lamenting says God deserves better. Complaining only sees your pain. Lamenting learns to see the pain of those around you and the very pain of creation itself. And so we need to not be so quick to run from our tears. Perhaps this is why God will not allow the sufferings of this world to ever be far from our eyes. Each week as we worship, God draws us to his table where we behold a picture of the death of Jesus in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. That Friday afternoon, Jesus was abandoned by his friends. He was abandoned by justice. He was abandoned by his Father. And the darkness consumed him as the sun itself turned its back on him. And so the Lord's Supper invites us to lament the sufferings of this world. Each Sunday as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is not just a reminder of his death, but that our lives are tied up with his. And that his resurrection is the assurance of ours. It is God's declaration that the dead do rise up and praise him. And that if we belong to him, we will. And so we lament, not because we are without hope, but because only those with hope truly lament. Because if the darkness could not hold him, neither will it hold us. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. And please bow with me in prayer. Father, you know that this world is not what it should be. You know better than, than we do. It's brokenness. It's potential. It's need for restoration. And so you lament. You lament and you wait. Teach us to lament and to wait. Teach us to weep deeply and patiently Teach us to long for restoration. May we lament more and complain less. Let us do so with hope, with confidence, knowing that you are good and that you make all things right. Even so we pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.